there have been methods developed at SFI and elsewhere that allow us to go down this path of coarse-grained regularity, that is average regularity for complex systems. And that's been very successful. Network science has been very successful, simplifying, but not too much, human interactions. Where we're not good is how do we put in agency and reflexivity? We're not particles in fields. <laughs> we have beliefs and desires and superstitions. And I think the great lesson of the last two years was that we don't know how to do it. And we got frustrated, and the way we manifested our own limitations, I think, as scientists was to say, look how irrational people are. Well, yes, <laughs> but that's what it means to be human. I mean, we know that. That's not a shock. What we were really saying is we don't know how to, in a reasonably parsimonious way, theorize human agency. And, you know, it's clearly going to be the future of a lot of complexity science. <laughs> If you're honest with yourself, you're likely asking of the last two years, what happened? The COVID-19 pandemic is a prism through which our stories and predictions have refracted. Or perhaps it's a kaleidoscope through which we can infer relationships and causes, but the pieces all keep shifting. One way to think about humankind's response to COVID is as a collision between predictive power and understanding, highlighting how far the evolution of our comprehension has trailed behind the evolution of our tools. Another way of looking at it is in terms of bottlenecks and reservoirs, whether it's N95 mask distribution, log-jammed shipping lanes, or everybody looking up to Tony Fauci, super spreader events, or narrative rupture, COVID is a global crash course in how things flow through networks. Ultimately, the effects go even deeper. How has COVID changed our understanding of individuality, the self, and its relationship to other selves? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this special year-end wrap-up episode, we speak with SFI President David Krakauer and former SFI President and Distinguished Professor Jeffrey West about The Complex Alternative a new SFI Press volume gathering the perspectives of over 60 members of the complex systems research community on COVID-19. Not just the disease, but the webbed and embedded systems it revealed. Complexity Podcast will take a winter hiatus over the holidays and return on Wednesday, January 12th. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. Please also be aware that PhD students are now welcome to apply for our tuitionless summer 2022 SFI Gains residential program in Vienna, Austria. Learn more at santafe.edu slash gains. Lastly, please excuse the technical issues we had with Jeffrey's microphone in the first nine minutes of this conversation. Things rapidly and markedly improve. Thank you for listening. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure. I'm excited to have you both on the show at the same time. Uh, I suspect this will 
take us some interesting places. We have a kind of a three-body problem here. So let's start by first giving a bit of background, a chronology of work that led into this new SFI Press volume, a history of SFI's relationship to epidemiology and the complex systems concerns that sort of halo the discussion of COVID-19. So, right. So just to be clear, this whole phenomenon started at the end of 2019 with a series of sort of pneumonia cases in Wuhan. And it wasn't until about March of 2020 that it was declared a global pandemic. And in March of 2020, we began our transmission series, asking our community to engage with COVID, not just as a viral infection, but as a assault on the infrastructure of society, right? The economy, how it would change human behavior, how it would have implications for other aspects of health and so forth. So SFI, the key was that SFI would respond not just as immunologists or epidemiologists, we had a long history in those fields, but it's a complexity problem. And I think we're still reckoning with that. Yeah, I think we've even recognized way at the beginning there that, um, uh, funny way of putting it maybe, but this was an opportunity for us because it was a kind of a complex adaptive system in action over an extraordinary short period of time. That uh, something that uh, one thinks of as in terms of the narrow confines of disease and, and the spreading of disease, epidemiological issues and so on, actually had extraordinary implications on all possible walks of life, on all aspects of life. Uh, the very essence of a complex system. And that's, uh, so it was very natural, I think, for SFI to uh, start getting uh, sort of proactively involved in the sense of providing a uh, forum for people to talk about their views of it from multiple perspectives, not just as an epidemiological or um, health issue. And, and that led to this book, <laughs> The Complex Alternative, and that it means the alternative to, to simplicity. And we get into that, what simplicity means both in science and society, but the book essentially compiles our early articles on COVID, our reflections on what we got right, what we got wrong, and then longer contributions, sort of essayistic contributions to COVID and complexity more generally, and why we think it matters for society and that it's actually existential at this point that we understand complexity, not just another contribution to disciplinary science. One of the things I like about this introduction is its focus on the need, as you put it, to investigate the enduring allure of the simple. And you know, I think it was just this last episode talking with Simon Dedeo about the relationship between a revolution in physics, you know, and, and the, the development of a new conciliant theory with conspiracy theory and the, you know, the, the desire to find uh, an encompassing portrait of something, something that, that explains everything. And that's sort of twinned with this, this other desire for a silver bullet. And you talk about in this, you say, simplicity wants to reduce the multidimensional complexity of the pandemic to one or two simple factors, and how every one of these factors are explanations and many more represents an interactive interdependent component of the complex systemic phenomenon we call COVID-19. So there's, there's a tension, not only, you know, as Jeffrey, as you say, the 
the multiple perspectives are not just synchronic, right? There's not just 60 plus people all provide their own position, but then uh, diachronic in that 60 plus people are also now reflecting on what they got right and what they got wrong. And it's interesting just to note, even in this community, there seems to be a great deal of disagreement about just how much and what kind of simplicity matters in understanding these phenomena. So where do you personally see us as a research community having identified salient simplicities? And where do you see us as having identified their requisite balances? Yeah, so yeah, that's of course a very uh, challenging question because it, it, it uh, actually it's not just about this pandemic, it's about the science we do at SFI is, you know, to what extent is it goes from one extreme, you could imagine when you're thinking of a high complex system that's evolving, adapting with huge numbers of uh, components and actors and so on. Um, you know, you can go everywhere from, so to speak, the kitchen sink model, where you throw everything in, which is not typically what most of us want to do, um, all the way to what you could call simplicity, where you try to reduce it to um, just a few dominant variables. I don't think, I, I don't like the word simplicity there as much as just this, this phrase of being coarse-grained, low resolution, or what Murray Gell-Mann, of course, called, you know, a crude look at the whole. And that's what we want to get, it's sort of two extremes. And sort of in, in between those two poles, the one of um, coarse-grained, trying to identify what are the dominant variables, what are the essential features, that one pole, the other pole being everything in the kitchen sink goes into it. In between is the whole question of variation and stochastic behavior, probability, and so on. And, uh, uh, and, and SFI, I think researchers at SFI cover that spectrum. And I think that's why when we come up against in real time something like the pandemic, then, of course, you get these very different expressions of what that spectrum is. And I think that's been, um, I think in the end, when we distill all this, I think that's gonna be enormously healthy for this, the Institute, the science we do here, but for complexity in general, you know, thinking about how we attack such problems. Yeah, you can sort of triangulate this, right? SFI's approach between two extremes. So the world that Jeffrey came from of high energy physics, particle physics, that's completely beholden to notions of symmetry and minimality and harmony, elegance, all those kinds of terms that are all in some sense surrogates for understanding, right? that we, we want to be able to grasp something in our mind. On the other hand, now we were in the world with machine learning algorithms. And just to make this very concrete, take the standard model of physics. So this is the model that organizes most of matter as we know it and all of its particles and their interactions. That, as of today, has about 25 free parameters. GPT-3, which is a language model that doesn't organize the universe, it organizes a bit of text, has 175 billion free parameters. Okay? And I think the question is, now, another way of saying this, right, is that the standard model is the model of the universe, of the non-living universe, and GPT-3 is the model of adaptive reality. And to get to Jeffrey's point, what's the midpoint for complexity? What's coarse-grained theory look like? It's not going to look like the standard model. 
but it sure as hell should not look like GPT-3. And that's the big sort of like philosophical conundrum. And one of the limitations, I think, and we could discuss this, of some of the simple epidemiological models is they want to look like the standard model. Yes. No, I think that's exactly right, David. And it's very elegant, actually, the, the uh, SIR model of epidemiology, which was developed, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, it's not much change, really, except for a few bells and whistles. But it is, it's in the traditional um, paradigm of uh, physics. You know, it's, it's very deterministic. Um, it has, uh, it, the actual model has no uh, probability in it or statistics. And it certainly pays no attention to, um, you know, the vagaries of human interaction and s social behavior. And uh, one of the things that we've learned, especially in the last year or 18 months, is that that's uh, been a crucial element in dealing with the pandemic. So that brings up a lot of very challenging questions for those of, those of us that work in complexity science, uh, whatever our background is, however we came to this. And I think the challenge for all the kinds of work that we do is finding that middle ground. And I do like the idea of coarse graining, that is meaning that you, you, you maintain some of the ideas in this simplicity, that is there's a finite hopefully smallish number of variables or degrees of freedom capturing the essential features. But you use that as a baseline or a point of departure for then adding more and more complexity or more and more high, higher and higher resolution of the problem. And I think that's, uh, that's a fruitful way of attacking many of the kinds of problems we deal with. And as far as I know, it actually hasn't been done. I mean, that sort of strategy was not employed during the pandemic, unfortunately. It's been willy-nilly, and I think epidemiologists have been very slow, I'm not blaming them, but to um, you know, adapt, so to speak, to enormity of the problem that we're facing. So you know, in, in talking about coarse grain versus fine grain, there's an imperfect analogy with like top-down, bottom-up governance. And, you know, even in the earliest discussions, that we had on the show about this, you know, I'm thinking about uh, Sam Scarpino and Laurent Hubert de France talking about the the role of behavior and belief in the spread of this. You know, it became clear that there are massive problems with the conceit of technocratic governance being able to solve this, as well as paired or complementary problems with markets solving this on their own. And so, in terms of not only our understanding, but our ability to act on our understanding. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on, on that and specifically like the lessons for people that are used to a pursuit of truth when faced by a, a, a problem of essentially like functionality or practicality that is off to one side of this purely empirical concern. Yeah. I mean, one thing to say here, I mean, just connecting those two discussions is that there have been methods developed at SFI and elsewhere, including by Jeffrey, yeah. that allow us to go down this path of, of, of coarse-grained regularity, that is average regularity for complex systems. And that's been very successful. Network science has been very successful, simplifying, but not too much, uh, human interactions. Where we're not good is how do we put in agency and reflexivity? We're not particles in fields. <laughs> 
we have beliefs and desires and superstitions. And I think the great lesson of the last two years was that we don't know how to do it. <laughs> and we got frustrated. And the way we manifested our own limitations, I think, as scientists was to say, look how irrational people are. Well, yes, <laughs> but that's what it means to be human. I mean, we know that. That's not a shock. The question is what we were really saying. I think the subtext of that criticism is we don't know how to, in a reasonably parsimonious way, theorize human agency. And, you know, it's clearly going to be the future of a lot of complexity science because we don't want to go down the path of machine learning. I mean, it's valuable, but it's not comprehensible. <laughs> you know, you sacrifice clarity for the opacity of the predictive algorithm. So I think that's the thing that you're getting at from the complexity science point of view is how do we theorize about agency? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, put it in sort of very simplistic terms. And one of the things that one recognizes is that in addressing a question of understanding something like the pandemic or question of dealing with global sustainability or, or climate change is that, you know, in the end, in terms of solving these problems for society, it's a political problem. I mean, they're the ones that have the, you know, and so, and so how do you put that into your equations kind of question is making it into a sort of a cartoon version of that, you know. Um, and so, you know, the traditional methodology the or mode of behavior is what I said, I think, near the beginning, is that many of us take the attitude, well, we're supplying the basic science, you know, that informs the policymakers and practitioners. And I think, yes, we, we need to do that and so on. But there's this, sudden, this, this, this funny gray area, this gap. In between there are all those human beings. There's the, you know, doing their things, their, their desires, their wants, their needs, their irrationality, and so on. And trying to somehow put that into a scientific framework in a way that is useful, I think, is going to be one of the great challenges of of advancing the usefulness of complex adaptive systems and its thinking. It's quite interesting, Mike, to, to get to the book. I mean, I, just to make a point about this, the way this works, right, is that it compiles these original articles and then the author's reflections on what they got right and wrong. So we wanted to know what shocked you after two years of having watched this unfold. And it's quite interesting. I mean, to this discussion, it's quite split. I mean, there are those who will say, we have to get behavior into the mathematical models. Otherwise, they're going to be useless, right? And we've talked about this before, the early phase of infection being quite biological and well-behaved exponentially, yes. and then going nuts, and then human behavior dominating rather than biology. But then there are others who said, no, we just have to find the new coarse grain models. I mean, John Matter makes this point, right? Chris Moore makes this point, Sid Redner makes this point. No, we just have to be more sophisticated, drop the deterministic mass action, put the stochasticity in, and as, you know, then we get the causality out. We don't get prediction out, but we get causality out. So the, it's, it's the, even the community is internally riven on the question of what the right response should be. So maybe rather than having you both spend this entire conversation speaking for everyone, <laughs> the next step would be to invite each of you to reflect on what you got right and wrong. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, David, in your piece, 
I remember, even though you personally cautioned me against anything even remotely resembling a kind of sanguine view of the silver lining of this event, that you nonetheless started with a real optimistic outlook on our ability to self-organize a kind of anti-flash mob for disease containment, and that your reflection is one in which you you kind of throw up your hands and accept the fact that maybe the only way that people can coordinate is on a much longer time scale with much more time to process and and that you know really uh, citizen-based preventative medicine has to be preventative yeah. and 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 so yeah I mean I, I'm curious to to hear you talk about that and then about also what you know where you see the sort of thresholds for, when it ceases to become appropriate to examine a particular phenomenon with the tools of prediction versus the tools of understanding? Like, where do you see the balance point in the, the respect, like the various domains around this issue? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I would say the last two years have been a failure of understanding and no number of epidemiological models published in epidemiological journals will change that. So I, I just don't find them useful in terms of dealing with the core concern. I, yeah, I felt that, talk about agency, that the fact that humans, we, could actually be a part of the solution would be very incentivizing. You know, if I get a disease like a cancer, there's not much I can do, and I have to essentially resign myself to the expertise of a physician and trust that they have abilities that I, or knowledge that I don't have. Whereas in this case, I could act on it. I could be a part of the solution. I just, I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm going to isolate it and so on. I can, and I can communicate to others who don't understand that. Why? So there was this active dimension to COVID, but it wasn't realized in the way that I'd hoped, right? And I think the reason is the timescale was off, to your point. You know, I, I call this sort of the Clausewitz principle. I mean, Clausewitz said, you know, politics is war by other means. And I think that the strategy has to be worked out before the battle. And all of the basic lack of understanding that we've been dealing with should have been a part of a systematic educational effort for decades. Mm -hmm. And to expect people to understand what an RNA vaccine is during an epidemic is extremely optimistic. So when I say it should be preventative medicine, what I mean is, you know, it's like exercise, John's article, right? like good diet, like sleeping well, all of those things that are preventative, we have to adopt the same attitude towards the next crisis. And, and enumerating that list of what those should be is interesting, but that's where I am now. I just don't think you can act rationally in the heat of the moment. Yeah, no, I agree with that quite strongly. And uh, I'm not, and I must say, I, until the pandemic, I was not very familiar at all with um, questions of... Um, both pandemics and epidemics and so on, in terms of, um, you know, I had the attitude, I think many did, that, uh, you know, we sort of had it under control. You know, we understood it, we understood the dynamics, that the governments knew how to react, um, and so on and so forth. And indeed, you know, what we discovered was we were totally unprepared in a very disgraceful way. And it wasn't just the United States, it was sort of globally totally unprepared. Uh, which in some respects is remarkable. I mean, given, of course, the classic case of the flu epidemic, but some of the other things that have propped up um, in the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, 
and I will give it to the epidemiologists and others who were already telling us that uh, we should be prepared for something like this, some random mutation um, and I, uh, that, that would cause this kind of chaos. So I think that is uh, a, a remarkable failing. And I think uh, one of the things that um, hopefully will happen is both globally and nationally, we will now be in a sort of standby mode in the same way that we have a standing army. We have, you know, two or three million soldiers, I mean, or um, army, air force, navy personnel who are in standby all the time to keep us secure in some sense. So there should be, obviously, some analog to that. Um, I'm not sure that the war is the right metaphor here, that's for sure. But there should be in, in, in the sense of being prepared for another kind of pandemic. The other thing, though, that I think is more personal interest was, um, again, what I think was clear near the beginning was that this wasn't just a health issue. And I think in the article that David and I wrote was that, that it was so much more than that. And it was sort of obvious near the beginning that it was going to have tentacles everywhere. And again, the lack of appreciation of that, I think, is, is really too bad. By the way, not just in terms of politicians and policymakers and, and the various practitioners, but ironically, throughout the academic community, it was sort of like, Turn it over to the epidemiologists. They know what they're doing. Anthony Fauci will tell us what to do. That's it, guys. I mean, that was sort of the attitude in the first months. And you know something? It still persists. Um, I saw Fauci last night on PBS News, and he was he's very good, I think, actually. But, you know, it was sort of that's it, that they only turned to Anthony Fauci. Um, you know, whereas... It's a problem covering the entire spectrum. I do, I do want to add, I mean, it does get to something that, in the, that David Kinney writes about in the book. And he cites, I think, Sloman's book, yeah. The Illusion of Knowledge, which is sort of how much we outsource, how much we think we understand. I mean, most people don't know how a television works, right? And yet they use it daily. And it raises this very interesting moral question almost, which is, what can you not outsource? And we've got so used to that, right? It's like, well, it's worked thus far. I don't have to know how a vaccine works. I don't have to know how a television works. I don't know how to, a combustion engine works. Still can drive my car. But in this case, it mattered. It actually does matter if you know how a vaccine works. If you believe that a vaccine can be transmitted electromagnetically in a 5G network, and that buying a USB stick would be a 5G shield, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. <laughs> and you, so I actually think one of the educational pedagogical implications of the entire crisis is what can we not black box? And, you know, that's really the whole AI debate, really. But it goes actually goes further than that. I mean, one of the shocking things, I think, to many of us was the rise of the anti-vaccination movement mm -hmm. in its multiple forms. And I think that was a great shock to me personally, um, you know, I certainly have, I, I've been vaccinated, I don't know how many times in my life against many things. And I see that as one of the great triumphs of science in the last couple of hundred years. And um, I, I had naively taken it for granted 
that that's what everybody felt. I mean, obviously there'd be something. I mean, I we we know about the um, protests against getting uh, measles vaccination for kids and so on, but it's a small minority. So one would might have expected a few percent instead of forty percent or thirty percent, which is extraordinary. And of course, one of the tragedies of that is that if you have 30-40% people refusing to get vaccinated, that puts the rest of us continuously at risk. But it's funny, I, it's funny I, one thing to say about this, which, yes and no, I've read a lot about that, uh, you know, our shock, and, and many of the um, contributors in our book express it. But when Semmelweis first suggested that we should be washing our hands oh, yes. Yes, in sure. maternity clinics, he was resisted. He was Austro-Hungarian. The British didn't like it because it wasn't a British idea. The French didn't like it. The Germans didn't like it. Yes, the politics sure. and xenophobia of the early half of the 19th century meant they denied a self-evident, cheap remedy. Sure. And so we've been here before. That's over 150 years old. And so in a sense, right, we should not be surprised. Because, no. right? And I think that that... That I'm a little shocked by our shock, I guess. No, but I, I completely agree yeah. with you um, yeah. that, yes, there is this history of yeah. fear against uh, vaccines and so on, um, but um, uh, or fear against something new like that that impacts our health and impacts our bodies. You know, I, and I think, uh, but for many of us growing up, it was sort of taken for granted, vaccination. I mean, the polio vaccine was hailed as one of the great triumphs during the 50s, and we all embraced it. It was sort of considered like a miracle. And that kind of set the cultural stage. And um, somehow it, it only sank so far into the culture. And this fear of changing habits in terms of health and body uh, really has, is, uh, to me, was a surprise. And maybe it shouldn't have been, uh, from what you said that uh, when you start talking about messing around with your own body, people, someone from the outside is going to mess around with my body, whether it's washing it or injecting it with something, there's kind of a visceral reaction, I think. And that has set in. And I think that was much deeper than uh, many of us thought. And that was expressed, as you say, in the, by many of our colleagues. But that is exactly the kind of thing that uh, and, and that one is probably much easier to incorporate into models, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, w wasn't in the mathematical models of epidemiology. So y'all are orbiting something very deep here. I want to I want to take this and, and loop it back or return to you know, trying to smear this question over all the comments that you've just made in the last few moments. Because, David, you're asking about, like, what can you not outsource or black box? How much can we just sort of rescind our understanding. And then, Jeffrey, you're talking about this deep visceral concern about bodily autonomy and, and sovereignty that seems related to sort of uh, questions around the body politic and this rise of, yeah, again, like a visceral disgust or repulsion that manifested itself collectively in conversations around border closures and the looming specter of climate migration compounding this problem and so on. It definitely feels like over the last two years, human civilization has 
reacquainted itself with the benefits of inconvenience. And when you're talking about everybody looking to Anthony Fauci for some sort of guidance from on high, we're talking about choke points. And many people in this community have commented on the way that COVID was sort of arguably created as a pandemic by our monomaniacal obsession with connecting everything to everything else. Someone on Twitter commented today about your conversation with David Pakman on his podcast and quoted Mike Ford as saying, everything is connected. That's why it shorts out so often. So I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about this in terms, to start with you, David, of the conversation that we had last year in which we were talking about Bill Miller's contribution to this this collection and the way that he thinks about investment strategies and the you know how that looks when you look at something like a viral quasi species not having a fixed address and when there are sort of regimes or circumstances in which reserves are punished by the ecosystem versus when they're they're encouraged so yeah like in thinking about you know supply chain failures communication bottlenecks when it is the right time to prepare, when we want brown fat reserves. This is also true in terms of this interest that people seem to, you know, more and more people are surprising their organizations by saying, or their, their communities by saying, I don't want to return to the old normal. There, there seems to be a resurgent appreciation of inconvenience and in some cases, isolation, you know, like it, it, even in that sort of mistaken first glimmer of optimism for coordination, there was this idea that, yeah, like together we can all recognize that we're all willing to take a hit for a collective benefit. So I'm curious about your, you know, your thoughts on that and about this sort of seems like it only amplified or accelerated a conversation that I was already seeing going on with respect to the fragmentation of, of the internet and the polarization of society broadly as not necessarily being a bad thing. Mm, oh, I see. Yeah. So, okay. So just this whole question of different species of polarization and fragmentation and so on, and its relationship to robustness almost. I mean, it was interesting just to get to the Miller question. Bill made the point very early, right, that one expects there to be a divergence in the response of Wall Street and Main Street. And his argument essentially is that Main Street is dominated by short-term psychological decision-making. Whereas Wall Street integrates. And so Wall Street sort of knew that there would be a vaccine. And so why then wouldn't the market recover? It had that knowledge. We had that knowledge. It's hard for us to act on that knowledge on our day-to-day -day basis. So that was the first interesting divergence that I think shocked a lot of people. How can there be so much unemployment and all of these stocks are riding so high? And Bill sort of nailed that one. Um, this more general question, though, I find very interesting of, we know right, from biology that this high density connectivity is work that Jeffrey does in cities and sort of city is, accelerates everything. And it's very interesting. I don't know what Jeffrey thinks about this. I don't think political polarization is a good idea, but does a sort of a sense of community that's not fully connected to the world, is that important for the survival, A, survival, and B, the growth of rare ideas that won't be dominated by the population average idea. So uh, you're right. I think it's quite interesting. I mean, just a final point on this. SFI is on a mountain in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a very low-density state. And I think it's critical to the production and persistence of novel ideas. 
think if we were in a city, it couldn't work. And people have tried and failed. So there is an argument for, for a kind of isolation, but hopefully isolation doesn't have to be equal to intolerance. Yeah, well, there's a lot of, you brought up a lot of very interesting issues and questions and conundrums, really. But this question about the coherence of the whole and the collective behavior and feeling part of that collective and social conscience and so on versus the um, sort of the breakup, um, which need not be polarized, by the way, just different. And, and a city is a good example in a way because it is a collective and you can think of it as a whole. But of course, it has neighborhoods and it has, you know, it has very different, has different communities within it that uh, behave differently and are sometimes in opposition to one another and are sometimes polarized. But um, they do act that way. And cities are sort of this interesting cauldron or, or um, ex which sort of chemical reaction that is bringing people together, accelerating. And, they, and that comes, of course, from um, you know, people's interactions being mostly positive feedback mechanisms, like we're doing here. We're sort of building on something together. And, um, you know, cities have been marvelously successful in creating ideas, innovation, entrepreneurship, wealth, and so on. But uh, that comes at a cost because when you increase the rate of interaction, you also increase the rate of all the bad things that people do, like killing each other or crime and, uh, and, and transmitting disease. And so um, there's always these kinds of trade-offs. And one of the interesting questions about the spread of disease, in some ways it is like the spread of ideas, but it's also, of course, a very different kind of phenomenon. But it has something in common with that. And it does bring up something that David just brought up, you know, we have one on <laughs> that image that I just said, you're bringing people together as a social reactor, creating ideas and so on. On the other hand, you also have this image of, you know, someone going up on the mountaintop and thinking great thoughts and coming back with the Ten Commandments kind of thing, you know, all alone. And uh, those are the two extremes. And, and it may be, and I, I don't know what the uh, science of this is, but it could be that uh, you know when the when the collective breaks up into pieces and allows for more freedom of interaction among smaller groups, in, in, even down to the individual, maybe that is even more productive than just the willy-nilly sort of a, a gas of ten million people sort of bumping into each other. That uh, so I don't know I don't know the answer to that, and I don't. Uh, but it's a very interesting question about the origins of innovation and creativity in terms of the structure of the social networks um, and, and the physicality of the system that those networks are built on, what that is, how that structure plays into it. So uh, it's a very interesting question of itself. You know, just to you know, talk about an SFI affiliated faculty member on this topic, it's James Evans. I, you should, you should, I yeah. I mean, you, sh you yes. should, you should interview him um, on this recent paper published this year in Nature, and it's it's exactly on this, Jeffrey. And what they do is, I can't remember something like these sixty-five million papers or something. You're talking about uh, the one point eight billion site slowed canonical progress in large fields of science. That yeah, one? no, the more recent paper. Oh, oh that no, yes, it's yes. a more recent paper on disruption versus citation. Oh, so yeah. they, they right, so they studied essentially 
the effect of group size on the uptake and uh, impact of papers as measured by citations versus how disruptive that paper is. And we could get into how they, it's quite straightforward actually how they measure it. But the finding which came out of tens of millions of papers was that there's a trade-off here. A, there is a, an empirical law that the larger the group, that is the more co-authors or whatever you measure, the more likely the paper is to be cited, but the, but the less likely it is to be disruptive, right? Meaning, and they measure this essentially as, if you write a paper, you were to write a paper, Michael, do subsequent papers cite you predominantly or the papers you cite? So a disruptive paper implies I'm citing you and not what came before you. And they show there's just an inverse relationship between those two. And so small groups, meaning two or one, are the most disruptive, but no one listens. <laughs> large groups, on the other hand, have large networks and they get cited. So I think to Jeffrey's point, it's almost as if we want to be periodic and move between those two states. So, you know, this is an invitation to speculate. You know, Jeffrey, one of the things that I, I feel has to be mentioned in this conversation is the paper that you co-authored on a team with uh, Eliza Mora, um, the scaling of urban income inequality in the United States. And this, even though this may not have, I don't know, this may not have felt like an about face for you, it certainly marks a punctuation in the rhetoric around urban scaling and what a city is doing. And this, you know, you, you mentioned in, in the abstracts, uh, also worth noting that SFI's Vicki Yang and Chris Kempis worked on this. We show that income in the least wealthy decile scales close to linearly with city population, while income in the most wealthy decile scale with a significantly super linear exponent. So more, more than per capita wealth, cities are breeding poverty. And that, as people like Nick Hanauer have pointed out, undermines the interests of the ultra-rich. So there's a tension there. And, and it's been interesting to watch people going back and forth. Uh, you know, it seemed earlier on in, in the pandemic that that a lot of people were expecting a kind of urban flight. And while that has happened also, it's obviously it's been complicated by, you know, the kinds of offers employers are willing to make for people to relocate, et cetera. But yeah, I'm curious about this concept of this periodicity with respect to the utility of cities themselves. And you know, you've got people like Ricardo Hausman, who is just championing the return, you know, the importance of mobility and business travel and, and, you know, reconnecting everything. And then you've got a lot of people that are like, I don't ever want to go back to the office. Why should I have to? So yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the concerns surrounding this particular issue as regards everything we've talked about so far in this conversation about our ability to actually coordinate, prepare for, and mobilize against the next global crisis. Well, let me just address that inequality paper quickly. Um, uh, that was interesting. It actually came out of sort of discussions like the one we've just been having. Namely, we think of the city. If you use the word city, you sort of have a homogeneous image of it. But of course, it's highly inhomogeneous. And um, it has the word neighborhoods, but it certainly should be deconstructed. And it just turns out it's very hard, actually, to gather data to really delineate what that is. But one of the things we did at the beginning was looking at this question of inequality, because that's a good metric for that. And we discovered this really interesting result 
that was, uh, you know, very disturbing was, as you say, that, uh, you know, one of the things we've been championing is that cities have this kind of super linear behavior, meaning the bigger you are, the more you have per capita, more social interactions leading to more wealth and uh, higher standards of living and so on and so forth, but also more disease. But so what we discovered was that only happens if you're in the top deciles, so to speak. I mean, if you're the lowest deciles are close to linear, meaning you're getting nothing out of the city. I mean, in a simplistic way of thinking, you're getting nothing, you know, there's no point in being there in that sense. You're not getting that benefit that's come from uh, the the uh, positive feedback in social interaction. And uh, whereas the rich, the top deciles are getting more than their share, so to speak. Um, and that's very distressing. And um, And I think I don't know anyone that's analyzed the data. I think that gets reflected um, in some ways in kinds of the questions of what this pandemic did during uh, the last couple of years. But it does bring up, it does uh, beg some of these questions about also the way in which we attack many of these problems is it goes to questions of just, you know, when we start thinking of coarse graining, we also have to recognize there's great inhomogeneities in these systems, and which is very difficult often to take into account. By the way, one of the things, just a sort of tangential comment that is interesting is even though this is deconstructing a system into its parts and looking at the way those parts behave, there is a systematic behavior to that. So it gives you hope that you know you can still have a scientific framework for attacking some of these much uh, broader issues. So let's see, the last part of your question was, your comment was? Well, I mean, it was sort of to a conversation David and I had earlier in this series about Tony Egan's contribution and the, the idea of dynamic constitutions. And, you know, this idea of how do we adapt the code that we're- Oh, I know. know. No, yeah. I was, no, I know what I was, I picked up on. I'm yeah. sorry, was this really interesting question about uh, work, you know, and that's, huge question. You know, the future of work is now a big issue and so on. And this question that, that because one of the things that the good thing maybe that came out of the pandemic was people to recognize that, um, you know, uh, it, it's good to be at home and you, know, you don't have to be a workaholic. And, uh, you know, you can do, you know, it integrated more the, the kind of the dominance of your, of the workplace. It integrated that with the tradition of, I use the word home life, but you know, whatever it is, whatever the, your life is, the domesticated life you have at home. And, um, and I think the onus is on uh, em employers and companies and universities and so on to really adapt to that. And, and, and I must say, it's a, very, it's a big challenge for SFI, I think, because one of the great things about the Center for Institute was that it brings together this community of scholars from around the globe, basically. Um, and one of the things that we tout is that we bring together, you know, the anthropologists with the economists, with the physicists and mathematicians here in this building, and we talk to one another and we meet at tea and so on. And now we're not doing that physically, and we're, we're doing some version like everybody else on Zoom, but it ain't the same. And I, in that sense, Ricardo Hausmann's concern um, was a concern of mine from the very beginning, losing that. And I just give you a little anecdote. I have a collaboration uh, 
with uh, some of the people that wrote for this, Chris Kempis, Manfred uh, Laubischler, and his postdoc, Derek Painter at, uh, at uh, Arizona State. And um, we have been working on some questions to do with Anthropocene. It doesn't matter what it is exactly, but it's been extremely interesting. And we've been doing it for Zoom for the last year. And we made progress and we wrote a paper and so on. And then when we had that little window when the pandemic looked like it might be over kind of thing, you know, whenever that was in early in the year, we met here in this very room that we're sitting now. We did more in that hour and a half, we felt, in terms of ideas and excitement and writing things down and so on, than we felt we had done in the previous year of meeting essentially every week. And it was a real eye-opener to all of us. And and we were tremendously excited by that and hoping that now we would really take off and so on. So that's just a little personal anecdote. But I think there's a feeling of that that is uh, that, that people are missing. But it, it's tempered by this also this recognition that I can enjoy a more relaxed life by staying at home and not being in the workplace and being feeling that anxiety and pressure of producing whatever it is, whatever you do. Now, of course, by the way, one last remark on that. When we talk in those terms, we're talking about people whose jobs are amenable to being at home. Whereas there is a huge number of people, I don't know what the percentage is, that have to be in a place. You have to be if you're a factory worker, you have to be in the bloody factory and on the line and so on. Or if you're a janitor, you have to sweep the building and so on. So it's a little uh, elitist to only talk in those terms about the future of work. But let me, let me connect, actually, those issues, issues of, say, wage labor versus entrepreneurial work mm-hmm. to the issues of heavy tail distributions of advantage mm-hmm. and nonlinearity. I mean, they're connected. Complexity economics comes out of SFI. Part of complexity economics was the attack by people like Brian Arthur and others on the arrow de Bro framework, essentially a linear framework, arguing that things like positive returns would lead to heavy tails. Right? That's, and you can then ask what mechanisms support those kinds of broken symmetries, right? And these platforms that we've been building from Uber, right, through to various online trading platforms are essentially mechanisms that allow for the possibility of highly skewed equilibria. And I think that hasn't really been investigated carefully enough. People like Sam Bowles, Wendy Kahn, others do worry about that a great deal. Suresh and I do. This Is there something about the technologies that we're building? And I would include cities in that space, these accelerators of human invention that lead to highly skewed distributions because they are essentially non-linear engines and that like to push things to these sort of winner-takes-all outcomes. And and I think there's something that needs to be understood here that we've taken for granted because, as as Jeffrey said, Jeffrey started as a bit of a Pollyanna, right, with the cities. They were these general accelerators. Everyone benefits. And then you look carefully at the data and you realize, no, they're much more like some of these online winner-takes-all platforms where the tails are differentially, well, there are large tails that are differentially benefiting. So I think there's a very um, Santa Fe Institute research project here. 
So just to turn a little bit and reference a couple of the other contributions to this book, there seems to be an edge between the reflection by Melanie Mitchell and the reflection by Daniel Allen, Glenn Whale, and Rajiv Sethi. Melanie says, like refusing to wear a mask, eschewing vaccines is not like refusing to wear a seatbelt or a life jacket since the decision affects not just you, but your whole community. Above and beyond the point she's making about our reliance on imperfect analogy, she's pointing to something that became increasingly clear which and reflected in the, the, the discourse around interventions, which was the way that what we have conventionally understood as a matter of private or personal health is actually a public health concern. And then Alan, Will, and Sethi are saying, most police homicides ought to be handled more like failures of air traffic control than crimes, resulting in an evaluation of organizational systems alongside prosecution for unlawful conduct where appropriate. So there is this sense, again, to draw on Simon Dedeo pointing to the virus, the way that our understanding shifted from the virus as the thing to a symptom of this much larger, largely hidden thing. There's this, and we, you and I talked about this, Jeffrey, when, when I had you on the show the first time about the human as a hyper object and the way that, you know, server farms and all of these outboard mechanisms are contributing to our very, very deviant appropriation of metabolic energy based on the, the coarse grained expectations. And so, you know, this, I guess this relates to everything that we've discussed so far in that it seems like there is a burning question right now that's manifesting in all of these different ways about basically who am I? You know, what is an individual? I mean, you know, we're always bringing up the information theory of individuality, that paper on this show. And I think to the extent that that's a, that's a core thread that runs through a lot of these SFI discussions, I'd love to know from the two of you, your, your thoughts on how COVID has changed our understanding of the self and its relationship to these larger systems in which it finds itself. And that's very broad, and, and we can edit out the amount of time you spend ruminating on this. Well, I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, I imagine throughout most of human history, individuals did not have much agency at all. It's probably a blip in recent history, sort of the neoliberal ideal, you know, that you know, we, you know, we are the agents of our own destiny. And, you know, whatever. And so empirically, I think that's obviously an illusion, but in some domains it might be true. So that's one element of this. The other question I think you're absolutely right about, which is punishment, retribution, and blame. We like to blame people, and we're not good at blaming systems. And that's what makes socioeconomic reform hard, <laughs> because that's what has to be fixed. It's not a person. So we like to fire people and elect new presidents under the illusion that that's going to change everything. But of course, it doesn't change much. And we know that. And so, again, it's very much an SFI preoccupation, which is we have to develop new intuitions for thinking about systems. And all of these psychological dispositions that we've historically oriented to people have to somehow be reoriented to the system. And I don't know if you have ideas about how to do that, but I think that's part of what we need to do, to rethink the notion of agency in this highly connected sense. It's like the, the bumper sticker that says, I'll believe that a corporation is a person when Texas executes one. That kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, how, it's held how, how does Texas <laughs> execute a corporation? Right, right. Is, yeah. is, I think, right. you know, a pressing question right now. Yeah. 
No, I think I, I completely agree with David. I think uh, he said it all in a way. First of all, I think it's uh, it's probably true um, that the individual, in terms of his or her agency, is a relatively modern phenomenon. Having con- true control over your own life and destiny um, in the way we think about it. It's clearly both historically and culturally dependent. And it relied probably when once we formed sizable communities, only the elite might, you know, it, it, it probably existed among some of the elite. Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, the king, <laughs> so to speak, or the emperor presumably felt that. But, you know, the, the, the plebs, probably not so much. You know, they had a role. Their, their destiny was to a large extent determined. And so I think it's a modern phenomenon. And it's a, I consider it a luxury. And we sort of take it for granted. We've seen during the pandemic, in terms of you're quoting Melanie's article, exactly that issue that the individual feels so strongly as an individual. And it goes back to what we were just touching on in terms of the sanctity of the body, that he, you know, that you can't touch my body, you can't interfere with my body, even if I my body is causing damage to lots of people, you still can't touch it. And you know, it's it's a complete reversal of probably what existed in many communities, most communities, I would say, that the collective takes precedent over the individual. And uh, we've sort of developed this cult of the individual, uh, which we all enjoy. I mean, I enjoy it. I mean, I <laughs> I think of my certainly, um, <laughs> of course I indulge do. in that, uh, you know, like most of us, you know, and we're encouraged to do it. You know, everything about our society, um, especially in the United States, I would say, um, encourages the, 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 the people to think of themselves as the individual and the, the society comes sort of second. And the way we cover that up oftentimes is in terms of I'll stand up for the national anthem and so on, you know, that to show that I'm really part of the community and so on. Or I'll sign up for the military, you know, I mean, so people do do it, but it's a minority. Let me, but let me just, I mean, it's interesting to see how this zeitgeist is changing in a community that we connect to. I mean, colleagues of ours from very different political positions. I mean, let me just mention a few, you know, our friend Neil Ferguson is one and Neil is a historian. Neil in the last few years has embraced our work, Complexity Science, and is feels that we've just thought about causality completely wrong, that it's been about the great man sort of theory of history. And this is not true. I mean, Tolstoy famously put that at the end of War and Peace when he said, no, it's a kind of a statistical mechanics of history that we should be thinking about. Another visitor to SFI, Kyle Harper, who I note has influenced the novelist Neil Stevenson, who talked about him at length, um, has said, no, it's, you know, Gibbon was wrong about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It wasn't what Trajan did or Augustus did. It's what a plague did. So I think there is evidence, I think, of a shift towards a systemic view of the world, including in popular culture, in novels, and in histories. No, I do agree with you with that. That is definitely a, a shift. But I was what I was referring to was the structure of society in our culture now is individualistic. Yes. And the only individuals in the past have been George Washington, 
Julius Caesar and so on, just in that way. The, uh, that's where individuals played a role. And America would not have had a revolution it had not or won the Revolutionary War had it not been for George Washington, you know. It's interesting, a, a book that everyone is now talking about is Rausch's book, this, The Constitution of Knowledge. And it's not about Madison and Jefferson, it's about the Constitution. <laughs> so an, an OS, if you like, an operating, what we would call an OS for society, I guess. And that's an interesting shift again, that the hyper object, if you like, of the Constitution is the thing that we need to understand rather than the, the psychological dispositions of the people who wrote it collectively. And I think that's very exciting, actually, to, to move towards this sort of coupled dynamics, dynamical systems view of how the world really works, rather than the sort of single factor, one dimensional view, which takes us back to the whole book, yeah, <laughs> which absolutely. is, it's, that's not how things work. I mean, that the complex alternative is the alternative to that. Yeah. So to springboard off of that with a final question for the two of you, you've touched on this throughout the, the conversation. We've spent a lot of time, however, talking about surprise and failure, the post-game analysis, what we got wrong, what we could not have foreseen. What do you think SFI and the scientific community got right looking back on this? Like, what do you see as successes of research, coordination, communication? What can we celebrate? Not, you know, not just sort of improve. I mean, a lot of this is reflected in the book. No, in a way, I'd say there's a few things to say about this. So one is not about SFI, but about the success of reason and, and scientific progress, which is that we have made discoveries and we have deployed them in a reasonably short period of time, not a year or two, but a decade in terms of vaccine development. And, and that is a, a scientific success story, however you look at it, no doubt about it. Where I think we failed in that regard is to imagine that that's all we needed. And I think that's where SFI, I think, succeeded. I think SFI said, our community, that is, that's not enough. We need to understand behavior, complex contagion, the structure of networks, heterogeneity, vulnerable populations, economic implications. All of that is what we added to the mix. And I think part of the frustration is that on the national media, it was all about epidemiology. And that should have been one ingredient in a larger conversation. And as you know, we just, in our book, we talk about all of these other sequelae of isolation, psychological depression, uh, various kinds of uh, physical failures that weren't really being addressed. And it's not because we weren't pointing that out. So I think it was, that was a success for SFI, but it was probably a failure for the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think we sort of, in that sense, we had it right at least conceptually. I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't make predictions of various things uh, in terms of quantitatively with numbers. That was uh, beyond uh, what where the science uh, was and is. But we conceptually got it right that this is not, uh, once it started, it became very clear. It wasn't just an epidemiological problem, wasn't just a health issue, et cetera, et cetera. It was much more than that. And that's been very powerful. And my hope is that uh, this, this, this lesson will seep itself through, will sort of by diffuse itself throughout academia. And it wasn't just the media that got it wrong. I mean, the politicians got it wrong. And, uh, you know, the, the people, even the, and the, the people supposedly managing this, we only hear from, as I said earlier, we only hear from Mr. Fauci, 
We only hear from the World Health Organization and so on. We don't hear from all the other potential agencies and actors on the world stage and on the national stage and on the local stage that are impacted in this way and see them as interconnected. And I think that's the lesson that SFI was founded on, that those kinds of ideas. And I hope that that lesson will be learned and will, the word will spread, so to speak. So uh, I think that's been a, a great success for SFI and I hope it's recognized. Awesome. Just as a, a way of sort of concluding this, I'd love to know from each of you what, if anything, you feel needs to be addressed that has not been about this book or this topic in this conversation so far. And bonus points, if it happens to be <laughs> like a flaming hole in your own understanding of this, you know, a burning question that remains unanswered for you. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think we would all, we do not understand how collective intelligence works. And uh, we had a wonderful, we were all schooled in collective stupidity. And um, I think we haven't even begun to understand what's going on here. That's the, the very exciting thing about complexity science, right, is, is that we understand how stars work, solar systems work, engines work, computers work, but we really, we're not even in the foothills of understanding how complex reality works. And I think, so when you say what's missing, I mean, all of that, which is very exciting for us. And, and I think um, the last few years have been, in some sense, a demonstration. Yeah, I would say that uh, what the pandemic did for us, in a way, it, it, it made, uh, it, it added a certain urgency to uh, some of the big questions not just about the pandemic, but just all the ones to do with complex adaptive systems in general. And that we can play a really important role, not just, as I say, in the pandemic, but in questions about the biosphere and about sustainability and uh, climate change and what that effect will have and so on. And it's a template in a way, but it does, it illustrates for us that A, we've made tremendous progress on the one hand, but as David emphasized, we've scratched the surface. We're just beginning. And in a way, that's not surprising. We've been around a short time and there's been about 150 people working on it. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, in terms of the enormous effort and the incredible amount of money that goes into the science, especially the medical science enterprise, the amount of money and time and effort and people intelligent time that's gone into these questions is absolutely minuscule. And almost all of it is here, actually. And so it illustrates that we need so much more of this. We need to have that the federal agencies, the universities need to recognize this in a serious way, which brings up a whole bunch of big questions, even to do with the structure of universities and academia and so on and so forth, which we haven't even touched on here. But I think uh, that's very exciting to me. And I think it shows really how crucially important SFI is on the academic landscape. I'll add one more thing to that. I think the other thing that it illustrated is one of the great things that we have at SFI, of course, is action. And that is just a little bit of our connection to what is euphemistically called the real world. <laughs> you know, that is the, 
you know, various corporations and companies that uh, interact with SFI. And it may be that this illustrates that we need to go beyond that. We need to make that even more than it already is, but also include, you know, some politicians and practitioners and others that aren't particularly scientific minded, but really want to solve these problems and that we somehow need to get together with them, need to be in bed with them and really more of that. And I don't know how we do that. That's that's a whole new game. And it may be that we can't solve these problems unless we have everybody together. You know, it's not just the, the, our cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, but, you know, inter-society in terms of the shakers and movers who are thinking about these problems from a completely different and usually non-scientific viewpoint. In one room, breathing on each other. Exactly. <laughs> but I will say... That Infecting great, one another, you know, but in, intellectually. With ideas, with ideas. I will say that the, the, the problem has been with, as, and as Jeffrey says, I mean, our action is applied complexity network, SFI. The problem is, as soon as you move in that direction, the great magnets of ideological alignment yeah. start to operate on you. And the other great problem that we have not solved is we somewhat feel comfortable with the objectivity in our domain. And we're very nervous of moving down that path that Jeffrey is saying is probably existentially necessary without then being written off as pundits for a particular political perspective. And I, I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah, that's a huge issue. That issue coupled with, if, if it really went the way I just said, and it was embraced, we would get swallowed up. And the great one of the, so even though I, I was sort of in a cartoon mocking way, almost saying it's just 150 of us or whatever that, you know, um, that's been our strength in many, you know, that we, we delight in that, that um, we can be together and truly interact. I mean, the collaborations here have been extraordinary across a huge range of broad questions and broad disciplines. And fear would be that we might lose that because that has been operationally hugely successful. Just avoid ideology like the plague, but somehow still keep your job. Keep small, yes. yes. And keep, and keep small. Work. You know, small is beautiful kind yeah. of thing. And, and remain a citizen of the world. Yeah. yeah. It's, that's huge. To, they're in conflict with each other, some of these things, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's a an excellent mystery on which to end this. Thank you both. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Michael. Thank you, Jeffrey. Good <laughs> okay. The conversation. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.